Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for details. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral's Lights, show number 71. What a show we have lined up for you today. I'm glad everyone is now, hopefully, are catching up after a little bit of a, a shaky start last to last week's show. We've changed servers, changed house, changed site, changed RSS feeds, the whole kit and caboodle. And I just want to say a big thank you to Chris Collins, who kind of stepped up to the mark there, got it all sorted for. And a little special thank you to Gareth as well. Gareth, who did the narration for last week's story, is just a bit of a guru when it comes to the RSS feeds and everything like that. So, Chris, Gareth, thank you so much. You kind of saved this old bird from crashing, crashing and burning. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming on in this fine show today. There's going to be three poems, all by Bruce Boston, sprinkled throughout the show, so do look out for them. We have another review by The English Assassin, which is a fantastic review. Film Talk by Rod Barnett. We have a little introduction by none other than the Queen of SF Fraternity, Sheila Williams, editor at Asimov's. Sheila has recorded just a little piece to introduce the main fiction today. And the main fiction today is God Sellers, Fantastic, Lester Young and the Jupiter Moons Blues. This story first appeared in Asimov's in the July of 2008. And it's actually slightly different from the, the version of Asimov's. It has got a few little curse words in there. And actually Gord in his little outro explains why he wanted to put those back in. 
And like I said, God's doing a little bit of an outro with just to give you a little heads up how the story came about, how it was put together. And we have Skeet's fantastic artwork to accompany the story as well. It is just stunning, to be quite honest. Exactly what I like. You know, I just love that kind of artwork as well. Unfortunately, Skeet's leaving. You know what I mean? Oh, he's leaving for a few months. So that does give anyone out there a chance to, you know, come on board and show their talents. If you are an artist and you want to kind of put your work to a story, just drop us a line, starships over at gmail.com. And Skeet's also got his little article as well where he delves into like a, a, an artist who he admires. And he talks a little bit about the Lester Young's picture, how he came about to actually draw that picture as well. So there you go, a fun-packed show. So I think we will kick off with a little bit of Pori. Marble People by Bruce Boston If marble people were the world, some of us would strike others with great force so we could inhabit a circle of power until we were caromed away in turn by the force of another. Others would stand tall and straight, far above the antics of such childlike games, Doric, Ionic, Corinthian, upright and unyielding, they would carry the weight of the ages with style and stoic indifference. Yet the rare ones would be those who endured the brutal assault of hammer and chisel to emerge transformed, revealing the inherent grace that lies hidden in the branching veins of earthbound stone. First appeared in Strange Horizons, April 19th, 2006. There you go, don't forget, all copyright ears, Mr. Bruce Boston. Two more will be sprinkled throughout this day's show. Next up, we have The English Assassin with a fantastic review. Simon, sir, who is it? Isley always drove straight past a hitchhiker when she first saw him, to give herself time to size him up. She was looking for big muscles, a hunk on legs, puny, scrawny specimens with no use to her. Hello, Sophonauts. This is Simon Ingrill here, The English Assassin, and I've just read the opening passage from Michael Faber's debut novel, Under the Skin. A novel shortlisted for the Whitbread Prize, uh, published in the year 2000, received many positive reviews, but predominantly in the literary press. And I think Under the Skin is a novel that offers a lot to uh, science fiction fans and somehow uh, seem to slip under the science fiction uh, radar. So um, I'm here to try and readdress the balance. Although I'm sure uh, Michael Faber's more than happy not to be stuck in the the, the ghetto that is science fiction, uh, as I think uh, Kurt Vonnegut described it. Uh, and there's some parallels with Kurt Vonnegut. Certainly Kurt Vonnegut is an influence upon Michael Faber's work, and his uh, doctoral uh, thesis was on the novels of Kurt Vonnegut. From that opening, uh, you might be wondering, what the hell has that got to do with science fiction? Uh, And at a glance, the story of a woman driving around the Scottish Highlands looking for beefy men to pick up doesn't sound like a a classic sci-fi story. However, of course, it does beg the question, what is her interest in chunky men? Is she a sexual predator... Is she uh, lonely? Is she uh, just a weirdo? 
Or is she uh, some kind of serial killer? Well, in a way, she's she's all uh, all of those things, but not in the the obvious way. Unfortunately, I'm here to I'm going to warn you now. It's impossible to discuss this novel in any greater depth than I've just discussed it without dropping some major spoilers. So you'll have to forgive me. But here it is. Isley isn't a lonely old woman. She's an alien. Her job is to drive around the Scottish Highlands, picking up hitches that fit the bell, i.e. big chunky guys, poison them with uh, um, a, a hypodermic needle hidden in her car seat, and then drive them back to a farm where the uh, unsuspecting uh, hitcher gets processed as a meat product and uh, shipped back to her home world, where human flesh is considered to be a delicacy. There is an obvious uh, subtext to uh, Under the Skin, and that is um, the, the, the meat industry, the production and manufacture of meat products, and the way we treat animals in general. However, I don't want to give the impression that you have to be a vegetarian to enjoy the novel. I myself am not a vegetarian, and I love this novel. And I have no idea if Michael Faber is himself a vegetarian. I just feel the novel throws out some interesting and critical questions about our in society. From the novel you get the feeling that her society is deeply flawed. Pathologically so. While the novel doesn't overemphasize this, I feel there is uh, some obvious parallels between her society and the rationalization of anti-Semitism and the culture of fascism in the 1930s. And of course, the dehumanization of almost all non-European cultures during colonialism. However, Isley uh, forms a relationship with the, the son of her, her boss, who uh, opens her mind to uh, the plight of the, the poor animals, i.e. us human beings. And uh, she starts questioning the, the morality of her, of her own species. Isley is also um, very much an outsider. She's had to undergo what for her is hideous plastic surgery to make her look like a human being, i.e. our standard of a human being. So to her own people, she looks hideously ugly. However, the plastic surgery, her natural form is very different to ours. And her physical form is, is bizarre to our own eyes. She has big round eyes. She's small and she's deformed, except she has these massive, perfectly formed breasts. And here the novel raises some interesting sort of gender issues. As an ugly woman, she's also an outsider to the, the human society, to our society that she's interacting with. At the same time, she's the male guy, the, the male gaze of the uh, of the hitchers see her very much as a, a sex object or as a potential sex object, or in the case of, of those who find her repulsive, as a as a non-sex object due to her weird physical appearance. How we. So, again, the novel raises questions of how we objectify members of our own species as well as objectifying 
other life forms. The strength of Michael Faber's writing, though, is really apparent in his treatment of Isley as a fully rounded, believable, I say, human being. She's an outsider. She's crushed by loneliness and internal doubt. Despite her uh, active role in the capturing of us, the meat, she very much remains the heroine of the piece, maybe the anti-heroine of the piece. And she's a superbly rounded, believable character, apart from Isley. Anyway, for what it's worth, that's my take on Michael Faber's Under the Skin, published by Cannon Gate in 2000. Michael Faber has uh, gone on to write other novels and collections of short stories. The most notable is uh, the, his some mock Victorian Dickensian epic, uh, The Crimson Petal and the White, which for my money even surpasses Under the Skin for uh, depth and ambition. So anyway, I hope I've tempted you to uh, dig a little deeper under the skin. That's it from me. Back to Tony. Simon, I had not one idea who that was, so thank you so much for that. Yes. Please do pop some more reviews my way, Squire. Next up, Rod Barnett with his film talk. Hello, everybody. Today we're going to take a step back into science fiction film in its infancy or close to its infancy, the 1950s. I'm going to talk about two separate films, one an acknowledged classic, and one you may not believe is actually good. We'll get to that in a minute. First up, from 1951, The Thing from Another World. Stationed in Chile, Anchorage, Alaska, Captain Pat Hendry and his military air crew are sent to a research station near the Arctic Circle. Tagging along is newspaperman Scotty, who's looking for a story at the North Pole and hopes that this call from a scientific research team will be it. What brings them in north is a request for plane transport from the world-renowned Professor Arthur Carrington. The scientists are excited because of a magnetic disturbance and the sighting of a falling object that might be a meteor. Once the combined group gets to the landing site of the object, they quickly realize that what they found sunk into the ice isn't a meteor, it's a flying saucer. They attempt to melt the thickening ice around the craft, but accidentally destroy it, only to find an occupant of the saucer frozen in ice several yards away from the crash site. Scientific curiosity wins the day, and they chop the eight-foot-tall biped out of the ground and cart it back to the research center, where Captain Hendry decides to keep their visitor on ice, literally, until higher-level military arrives. But when a storm delays the Big Brass's arrival, and a poorly-placed electric blanket thaws out the unfortunate E.T., circumstances change very quickly. The visitor from another world turns out to be an evolved piece of vegetation that feeds on blood and intends to conquer Earth for its own kind. Released at the beginning of the 1950s, The Thing's box office success was the spur that drove the sci-fi horror film genre for most of the next decade. High-minded science fiction films like The Day the Earth Stood Still were pushed aside for an onslaught of invading creatures, slimy mutations, giant monsters, and action. All of the various science-gone-mad and giant bug films that marched across drive-in screens for the next 8 to 10 years 
can be traced back to this one film. All the classic conflicts of science versus the military, intellect versus emotion, and compassion versus violence are perfectly articulated in the thing, even if the military is kind of given an unfair advantage here. These conflicts would continue to inform science fiction films for years, from the best of them to the worst, until the ideas were reduced to nothing but cliches. Of course, the 50s were fertile ground for the kind of terror these stories thrust into the mass consciousness. The nuclear age was newborn, with no one really knowing what might come of man's splitting of the atom. Reports of unidentified flying objects were making the news regularly. And the next obvious step was to posit a sinister explanation for the UFOs and to link it to the general public fear of invasion. If not by communists, then walking vegetables would surely be enough. Since the thing is a thriller, the rational scientific men who want to study and learn from the alien are reduced to the role of decrying violence against such a monumental discovery. Somehow I don't think a movie about a friendly alien vegetable seeking peaceful coexistence would have fired the public's imagination half as much. But over half a century later, it's possible to see the scientist's point of view here a little clearer. And to be honest, director Howard Hawks presents the lead scientist as misguided in his search for pure information, but he does show the man as a professional with good instincts. He's not evil. He's just in the wrong place at the wrong time with maybe the wrong ideas. The thing was adapted from, from John W. Campbell's short story, Who Goes There? But really, only the idea of an alien invader and the Arctic setting were used by Hawks and his screenwriters. The real joy of the film is in watching another great Hawks ensemble cast enact a sharp tale in the most entertaining fashion possible. It's a shame that Hawks' lack of respect for the science fiction genre is evidenced by the fact that he allowed his longtime editor, Christian Nyby, to take director's credit for the film. It's now known that this was done so that Nyby could get into the director's guild, but it clearly shows that Hawks didn't take the film very seriously as part of his illustrious career. Luckily for us, he gave the film his usual 100% when on the job, as did the entire cast. There isn't a weak performance in the film, with my favorite performance being from genre stalwart Kenneth Toby. Playing one of the few leading roles of his career, Toby is simply great, whether he's trying to romance the lovely Margaret Sheridan or giving rapid-fire orders to his men while under attack from the murderous carrot. If you dig this movie and want to see more of the underrated Mr. Toby, I recommend the DVD of It Came From Beneath the Sea, in which he has another good roll up against a gigantic octopus, courtesy of Ray Harryhausen's amazing special effects. Now, few genre fans would argue that The Thing From Another World is a good film. As a matter of fact, it's considered a classic. But the next film I'm going to talk about from a few years later in that decade of the 1950s gets some people a little riled. Well, maybe not riled. But not everybody finds it to be as entertaining as I do. It's saddled with a title evoking cheesiness of the highest pungency. It's entitled... I married a monster from outer space. And strangely enough, believe it or not, it is actually a fairly thoughtful 1950s sci-fi film. In the past decade, I've seen genre fans inflate its mild qualities to try to argue it as a minor classic, but in all honesty, it really isn't. It is a pretty good little movie, but lowered expectations are the best way to approach it for maximum enjoyment. 
Traveling home late at night after his bachelor party, Bill Farrell nearly runs over a man lying in the middle of the road. Jumping out of his car, he finds the body gone, and he's then attacked and apparently absorbed by a grotesque, glowing alien creature. The next day, Bill shows up hours late for his wedding, appearing slightly confused, but goes through with the ceremony. Cut to a year later, and Bill's bride, Marge, is deeply concerned about him as he seems to be a different man from the one she fell in love with. He acts detached or unemotional, and compounding her fears is the fact that she hasn't yet become pregnant even though her doctor assures her that she can conceive. One night, Bill leaves the house in the middle of the night, and Marge follows him. He walks far into the local woods, where Marge witnesses her husband physically separate from one of the aliens and then enter their hidden spacecraft. Horrified, she runs to the local chief of police, and he comforts her with promises to look into the situation. Of course, all the small town's cops have been taken over by the aliens by this time, so no help is coming from that quarter at all. When Bill's buddy Sam becomes one of the controlled, we learn from their conversations that these weird invaders are trying to find a way to breed with human females. The females of their race were wiped out in a disaster, and without some form of interspecies mating, they will die out. In desperation, Marge tries to contact the FBI, but finds every avenue of communication cut off. She is even unable to leave the town. But when one of the disguised aliens dies accidentally, she thinks she may have found one authority figure that hasn't been taken over. Dr. Wayne. Her doctor. But how will she be able to find enough uncontrolled men in town to stop these creatures? Now, I Married a Monster from Outer Space is an odd variation on Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And it shares that film's Red Scare feel the general fear of communism at the time. But it's more interesting for its commentary on sexual politics and marital problems. The film opens with a booze-fueled bachelor party discussion in which the men's dismissive and derogatory statements about marriage are pretty harsh and certainly don't reflect the norm for 1950s genre movies. The movie also gives us a few female bar denizens who come off as quite slutty, one of which pays for a poorly timed flirtation with her life. Was she just in the wrong place at the wrong time, or deemed unworthy of being alien breeding stock because she's a tramp? On each of my viewings, this murder comes off as a disturbing value judgment, not of the creatures, but of the filmmakers. These kinds of ideas bubble around the story, as when the film smartly uses the fear of infidelity to lead Marge to the necessary revelations of the plot. Her following of Bill on a nocturnal trip away from home plays like a woman trying to catch her man with a mistress, only to stumble onto something much more sinister. And, of course, the central idea of the aliens mating with Earth women can make your skin crawl if one thinks through the implications of Marge's year of attempting to get pregnant. But even though the movie slips a few nasty ideas in, our one glimpse into the married couple's bedroom shows us two separate beds in keeping with the safe Hollywood version of life of the times. Luckily, the film still manages to keep things interesting by doing some odd things occasionally, like subverting the common marital fear of drinking and the abuse that can come with it. When it turns out that the controlled aliens avoid alcohol because it's deadly to them, this family fear of the period, and I guess really of all times, 
becomes a danger sign for a very different reason. The slightly more adult tilt to the material shows in other scenes as well, such as in the execution of a barfly that starts sniffing around Marge. He's coldly blown away when the alien-controlled cops decide that such a lowlife is of no use to them, just as the female bar tramp wasn't, I guess. Of course, this all may be a bit too much to ask a first-time viewer to see in a movie called I Married a Monster from Outer Space, but it's certainly there. And if folks can read a commentary on communism into Invasion of the Body Snatchers, then hey, I can see social commentary on the war between the sexes in this film. Besides, this movie's a little slow at times, and these kind of speculations help keep it fun. So that's it for this month's dip into science fiction film. I guess it's a bit of a history lesson this time around, delving, uh, well, 50 years or so into the past. But hey, there's a lot of good stuff back there. You don't have to take my word for it. Go check them out. Maybe next time, I'll advance a few decades. Maybe I'll get up into the 70s or something. But nevertheless, this is Rod Barnett, and I'll talk to you again in about a month. Go out, see some science fiction films, and try something that sounds a little ridiculous. There's good stuff to be seen, folks. Rod, thank you so much, sir. Yes, keep them coming. Bless him, he's had that one in sentence ages ago. So, Rod, thank you so much. So today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for your free audiobook. And I got the news the other day that, and I think this is actually quite a landmark achievement, Audible has been nominated for a Hugo Award for their Metropolis. You know, the one where the, the Jay Lake's in there and Tobias Bakel, John Scalzi. You know, to, for an actual an audio fiction, because that's all it is. It, it hasn't come out in, or I don't think it's come out in, in, in a hardback, paperback form or anything like that. It is an audio version that's up for the nomination. That is a staggering feat, and so like hats off to Audible to you know to get that to achieve that because you know you listen to their work and their work is like quality work to be quite honest. But to be nominated for a Hugo Award, hmm, can't get better than that. So do pop over, and that is my recommendation. Metatropolis, produced by Audible.com, it is up for Hugo Award. Be nice to find out what comes of that. I think we'll dip into another poem. Chess people. If chess people were the world, everything would be checkered. We would ride checkered cabs down checkered streets to arrive at our checkered assignations. Many of our cities would be truly rectilinear, numbered and lettered, so there would be no mistakes. According to your stature, you could only travel such rigid grids in prescribed fashion. If chess people were the world, we would be forever trying to mate one another with logic and spurious device, winning and losing, or calling it a draw. Some women would be queens, both swift and extreme in their power. Certain men, in kingly repose, would expect nothing less than royal dedication. Most of us would be pawns, immured in the fray with slight hope of transformation, each of us searching for that perfect combination.
first appeared in Strange Horizons, December 19th, 2005. There you go. Thank you, Bruce. So, we have the introduction to Godzilla Story by Sheila Williams. And like I say, Sheila Williams is the queen of SF fraternity. I called Sheila up, you know, me and Sheila are a bit like that now. <laughs> called her up on the phone, recorded. I just, just wanted like a little intro just for the story. Because I think the Lester Young story is just a cracking story. And it was it grabbed Sheila Williams' attention as well, you know. So, Sheila, over to you. For me, the discovery of Lester Young and the Jupiter Moons Blues was one of those situations that editors talk a lot about in generalities but rarely offer specific examples. It was a story from an unknown author that immediately jumped out of a large stack of stories, grabbed my attention, and never let go. It was, in fact, the first story I'd ever seen from Gord. He sent it in along with a cover letter that contained a fairly light resume of semi-professional appearances that was, except for one small fact, virtually identical to at least a 100 other letters I'd seen that week. Since the relevance of that one unusual piece of information, that he was a tenor saxophonist, would only become apparent once I'd immersed myself in the story, I probably forgot about it as soon as I read the letter. Subsequent emails are so expansive. He has wonderful information about Korea and about his life and about his writing, and it's really... It's just really fun to read his letters. <laughs> as much fun as re- almost as much fun as reading his stories. So I've been uh, very fortunate to have correspondence with him. My own letters are much briefer, I have to say. Every story, of course, has to speak for itself. But what Gore does in this story is truly amazing. This is a story about jazz and jazz musicians, about aliens and alternate universes and alternate history. Gord said to me in a note about the story. In jazz, we often steal one another's riffs and rearrange them. That's old-school remixing, really. And in a sense, this is a fond and respectful tribute to your remix. Well, it is that, but it's also a wonderful remix of many things, including the history of the 20th century. This is a story about jazz, but it's also a science fiction story about quantum mechanics. While Gord is rearranging the history of jazz, he is simultaneously mixing and rearranging multiple universes. He does this on a grand scale with his plot and his story and on the personal and sometimes painful level with his characters like J.J. and Robbie and his versions of Charlie Parker and Miles Davis. And ultimately, there's humanity's brilliant secret weapon. There you go. Thank you very much, Sheila Williams. So, main fiction, Lester Young and the Jupiter Moons Blues written by Gord Seller. And actually, if you go over to Gord Seller's site, gordseller.com, Seller as in S-E-L-L-A-R, there's a handsome new picture there, Gord, <laughs> on your site, yes. So do pop over to Gord Seller's site. Like I say, Gord Seller to me is, do you know what I mean, if this guy keeps writing like this, if this lad puts out a book, it will just be mind-boggling good. Do you know what I mean? I, I can't praise God's work enough. Do you know what I mean? He is just like at the cutting edge for me in sci-fi writing. Just amazing. And this story, like I say, I, I read this story on the way back from when I went to the sci-fi convention over in France. And I just read this on, on the train back and staggering, to be quite honest. And like I say, everything's just come together, you know. Narration today is by none other than J.J. Campanella. 
And I just, you know what I mean? When I read, even before I'd contacted God and, you know, I just, I do that now. I think, I'm always thinking, this will make a good audio story. Do you know what I mean? But when I read it, you know, and when I was reading it, I was reading it in what I knew J.J. Campanella would put it out at. You know what I mean? And I thought, that, that's that probably that's why I, I like it more as well, because I just knew J.J. Campanella, what a guy would make a great narration of this. You know what I mean? It had to have a certain voice for this story. And God made that clear, you know, at the very beginning. You know, he's, he was you know, not adamant, but he says, like, you know, that's the kind of the image you've got, you know, and that's the kind of the, the sounds I need. And he was, like I say, hopefully, you know, J.J., because God hasn't heard it yet, hopefully, you know, they'll you'll like it, God, so like J.J. Campanella's narration. It is just, in my eyes, a fine narration. And what I'll do, at the, straight at the end of the story, I'll just play God. So he'll just come on straight after the story and give you, like, a little heads up into the story as well. So the Starship Sova and her oral delight is very proud to present Lester Young and the Jupiter Moon's Blues. His first night back on Earth, after his gig on the frog ships, Bird showed up in mittens, cleaner than a broke-dick dog, with a brand new horn and a head full of crazy people music. He'd got himself a nice suit somewhere, and a fine new con alto, now this was back in 48 when everyone, me included, was crazy about Khan and King and only a few younger cats were playing on Selma horns. But it wasn't just that big-shouldered suit and the horn. The cat was clean. I mean clean. No more dope. No more liquor. No more fried chicken. Hell, he was always called Bird, short for Yard Bird on account of how much fried chicken he liked to eat. This was like a whole different Charlie Parker. He was living clean as a monk. He was walking straight and talking clear. His eyes weren't all fucked up and scary anymore, either. To be honest, I didn't recognize him when he walked into Mittens. It was about 3 a.m., and the regular jam session had been going on for a long time, and all these cats from Philly had shown up. You know dressed up like country Negroes on Sunday morning and playing all that Philadelphia grandpa swing they like to use to play. Smooth and all, but old-fashioned, especially for 1948. Even in New York City, the hotbed of bebop and the only place where the frogs were taking jazz musicians on tour, there was still a lot of old guys dressed up in zoo suits cut for them five years before trying to play like Coleman Hawkins and Johnny Hodges and Lester Young used to in the old days, before they all disappeared. Bebop was huge, but a lot of ignorant cats, they were trying to resist it, still disrespecting us, calling what we played Chinese music and shit. But Bird, he was clean, like I said, but he played some shit like I never heard before, like nobody never heard before. I'm telling you, when he went up on the bandstand and brought that horn up to his mouth, the music that came out of it was, well, it made us crazy. Back in those days, we were like mad scientists when it came to sounds. We'd be taking a leak at the same time and one of us would break wind. We all knew what note it was. We'd call it together, turn to one another laughing and shit and say, E-flat, Jack! 
you just fight at E flat. And that night we'd play every third tune in E flat. But them tunes Bird was playing, man, I ain't never heard nobody put notes together like that. The rhythms were so tangled up that even I had to listen close to catch them all. He was playing 37 notes evenly spaced across a four-beat bar and a fast swing. Crazy licks like that. And he was playing all these halfway tunings, quarter notes, and multiphonics, and all kinds of craziness. Even so, he was swinging. Everyone went crazy. It was just too much. And Bird just grinned like a damn king and said in that snooty British gentleman's accent he used to like to put on sometimes, Ladies and gents, this music is the wave of the future. It received its debut off the rings of Saturn. And if you don't like it, you can come right on up here and kiss my royal black ass. Them old guys, the zoot suit cats, they didn't like that. But they didn't say nothing. Everyone remembered how Bird never took no shit off nobody back before he went off tour in the solar system. Man, all that scared me a little. But I still wanted to get into one of them frog ships and hear what kind of music everyone was playing up there. They were hiring cats. Everyone knew that. But that was all I knew about it. Now I had never met Bird before, and I knew he wasn't going to talk to me. But Max Roach, Max was drumming up there that night, and I'd met Max one time before there at Mittens, so I figured I could talk to him. Max, he'd gone on to the frog ships a year or two back. Well, he looked at me like he knew what I wanted, what I was going to ask about, but he sat down to talk to me anyway. I told him I wanted onto the ships, wanted to know how to get in. You audition, same as for anything else. He said, shrugging. Who knows what they like? Don't ask me. But you've been on the ships. Uh-huh, Max said, nodded, but didn't say no more. What kind of music they hire you to play? Oh, man, you just need to play whatever. He said in that quiet, calm voice of his. He was a really cool, soulful cat most of the time. Some of the time, they take cats who swing the old way, really old-fashioned like what Duke's band used to play in the old days, or Billy Eckstein's. Hell, sometimes they want New Orleans funeral songs, or some cat who plays like Jelly Roll Morton. Other times, they only take cats who play real hard bebop, man. You can't never know what they want. But anyway, you don't need to go up to the ships. Messes a cat up, man. He tapped the tablecloth with his drumsticks. Hit my glass of bourbon with one of them. Ting. I know better now, but then I just thought he was stonewalling me. Figured maybe there were only limited spaces, and he was bullshitting me, trying to keep gigs open for cats he knew better. What do you mean, I said. Look at Bird. Remember when he left? Cat went up there looking like death on a soda cracker. Look at him now. I glanced over and saw him sitting at a table with Diz and Miles and Monk and Art Blakey, and fat girl Navarro and a couple of them white women who used to hang around at Mittens. They were laughing like a bunch of old women, like someone had just told a joke a second before. Bird, he wasn't fat no more. He was lean and real clear-headed and healthy-looking, nothing like when they let his ass out of Camarillo. He looked like a cat with a long life ahead of him. 
Bird's always been different. Always, man, Max said. He's just that kind of cat. Plus, they fixed him up. They wanted him bad. So they took him apart and then put him back together out there. A lot of cats, they just... Then he stopped, like he didn't know what to say. And his eyes went a little scary, the way birds used to. And he looked at me like he could see through my skin or something and said, Look, cats almost never come back like he did. The things that go on, you can't even imagine, he said. The room went quiet sometime while we were talking, and I could tell Max was relieved. He didn't like talking about the frog ships. Didn't want to recommend them to nobody. We both looked around and saw other people were all staring at the back of the club at the entrance. And what do you know, but this big, tall-ass frog had come in the back and was standing there watching us all. These days, there ain't a lot of cats who remember what the frogs look like. Really. It's been so long since they moved on. Let me tell you, the pictures don't show not even the half of it. They were like these big frogs who stretched their skins over a real tall man, but they had more eyes and weird-ass hands. No fingers. Just some tentacles on the ends of their damned arms. Man, and they walked on two legs. Now this frog, he was fat, and he wore a zoot suit, tailored specially for him, Hat and all, which just made him look totally out, man. Just crazy. He came in with three or four guys, white hipsters, and they sat themselves down at a table in the front of the club that was set out for them in a hurry. That frog, he was smoking long black cigarettes, four or five of them at once, on these long jade cigarette holders. He was looking around, too, with all these eyes on his face, as if to say, Where's the damn music? I looked at him closely and noticed that his skin, his face and hands, even his suit, it was all a little blurry like a badly shot photograph. He puffed on his cigarettes and looked around. Nobody said nothing. But all these cats, especially them sad Philly boys, they all thought it was their big chance. They hurried on up to the bandstand and they started to play their jumped-up jive-ass swing that old frog just leaned on back in its chair and kept on smoking those slow-burning black cigarettes, sticking its long blue tongue up into the smoke as it puffed it out. There were little black eyes all over its tongue, too, and they swiveled toward the bandstand. I couldn't tell if it was bored or enjoying the show, but I do know that finally, after they finished a few tunes, Bird had finally had enough. He tapped Thelonious Monk on the shoulder, and Monk nodded and stood up, and they went up to the bandstand. Everyone had heard about what had happened that night of the Three Deuces back in January in 1946. Everyone knew how these frog cats felt about Monk's music. Man, Thelonious. He just went on up to the piano and sat down, and everyone else on the bandstand just watched him. Every one of them quiet and thinking, Oh, shit. Monk. He lifted up his hands all dramatic like he was about to play a Beethoven sonata or whatever. Like that, you know what I mean. And when everyone shut up, he started playing. Straight no chaser. That was a fine tune. Just a little jagged and twisted up. He played the head real simple. Melody with his right hand. Old-fashioned blue stride with the left. The alien leaned forward. 
Everyone knew how much they liked Jelly Roll Morton, Duke Ellington, granddaddy of music like that. But when Monk finished out the head the second time and started improvising on the changes, man, you could see him sitting with his big-ass grin on his face up there at the piano. He started playing some of his really monkish shit, all that weird tangled-up melody, banging out tone clusters all over and over and plunking out his crooked little comping rhythms. The frog, when it heard Monk start up with all that, it stood itself up, dropped its cigarettes on the ground and slapped one hand over its huge front face eyes and the other over the back of its head. It was moaning with three or four voices at once, and this blue stuff started leaking out of its nose. Then it decided it was time to get the hell out. It wobbled and finally made it out the door, shaky like a junkie dying to shoot itself up. All them hipster cats it came in with, they all fouled it out, making out like they were all nervous and worried. Teddy Hill, who was running Mitten's Playhouse back then, he fouled them all out with a scared face on too. Bird, he laughed like a fucking maniac when he saw all that. Damn, frogs never could handle Monk, Max said laughing. Man, that was beautiful. A few weeks later, my buddy J.J. came by with this poster he'd found on some lamppost nearby. He read it out to me while I brushed my teeth one morning. Now hiring jazz musicians of all instrumental specialties. The Intergalactic Society of Entertainers and Artists Guild. Colored Americans only, please. Special preference currently given to aspiring bebop players. No rehires from previous tours, please. One year possibly renewable contracts available. See the solar system. Play blues on the moons of Jupiter. Go someplace where the man won't be breathing down your neck. Press here for more information. I spat out the foam from my toothpaste, put down my electro brush and asked, So where's the audition? He pressed his finger on the word here, and the sheet went blank for a second. Then a map appeared on it. Over on West 52nd at the Onyx. What? I was shocked. Going to the Onyx for an audition, man. That was like going on a tour of Mississippi with a busload of Negroes, women, and children all over. Over at the Onyx, man, it was all what my father used to call O-Phase. White men running the joint. Every last one of them motherfuckers. So damn racist it wasn't even funny. You heard me, the Onyx. Shit, what time? The Onyx? That was my woman, Francine. She'd been cooking and come up behind J.J., so quiet, we hadn't heard her till it was too late. She looked at J.J., and man, it was like, no bacon for you this morning, motherfucker. She pushed past him, her hands on her hips, and said, What are you gonna do? Go up into space, leave me alone with this baby? She said, putting her hands under her big belly. Francine, I said. No, Robbie, don't try to sweet-talk me, she said, shaking her head like she was having none of this. Damn, my mama told me I should stay away from you. Said musicians were nothing but trouble. I looked up at J.J. and tilted my head in the direction of the door. He just nodded and left us alone. She didn't say nothing till the screen door clicked shut. Robbie, baby, she said, looking up at me with those sweet brown eyes of hers. 
You are not going to that audition at the Onyx, she said. Man, it just about broke my heart, but I knew that I was done, completely done with her. I knew she'd be a good mama, but not to my babies. It was all over right then. So I looked at her and I said, I seen those letters you got all wrapped up, up in your sock drawer. What letters? She said, and it was almost believable, except I could see she was pretending. Lying. Francine, come on, girl. I wasn't born yesterday. Maybe last week, but not yesterday, baby. I know about you and Thornton. And don't be telling me it's some one-sided thing, because I know how you wrapped them letters up in a ribbon and hid them and all. I seen the dates on them, too. She slumped a little and said, Baby, I... Then she stopped. She couldn't lie to me no more, and she knew it. She was tired of lying to me, too, I think. She was a good enough woman, Francine. Now listen, baby, she said, and her voice cracked, but she tried to sound strong just the same. It ain't like I never heard about you running around with those other women. I know I ain't the only one of us who's been unfaithful. Francine, you and I both know that baby probably ain't mine. The way you've been rationing me around here, which is why I've been with other women since you don't give me what I need. Did I complain to you? Have I been nagging your ass? No. That's fine, I understand, but this? Look, you want that baby to have a daddy? You better go marry the man who done gave it to you. This is bullshit, she said. You can run around as much as you want, but you can't never get pregnant. Me, I do it once or twice behind your back, and look what I get. I know, I said, and I tried to put my arms around her, but she pushed me away. Life ain't fair, is it, girl? I said and tried again. This time, she let me hug her. It was breaking my heart, those sugar-brown eyes all full of tears, her arms shaking a little as she hugged me back, but I wasn't going to have no other man's baby calling me daddy, and I wasn't going to stay with no woman who'd been going behind my back with no other cat, so it was probably a mistake, me being so nice to her just then like that. She started crying, saying, I'm sorry, baby, I'm sorry, begging and pleading, kissing on me. She told me she wouldn't never do it again. That's good. You learned your lesson. Like you gonna be a good wife to Teddy Thornton. I said. He was the one who'd written her the letters. Used to play drums around town, though I heard his granddad died and he went into business of the money he inherited. And I tell you, when I said that, it was like the werewolf in them movies. You know how he changes in a second? That was Francine. Man, bam. What do you mean you ain't staying now after all that? Her eyes were full of a kind of fire only a woman can fill with. I shook my head. I'm going to get this gig, girl. Damn Bird and Hawk and all those other cats who've gone up there. They come back richer than Rockefeller. You damn right I'm going up there. You son of a bitch! She yelled, tears still running down her cheeks. She grabbed a lamp from the hallway just outside the bathroom. You gonna run off the space no matter what, wasn't you? Damn you! Then she threw the lamp at me, but I was quick and jumped sideways, so it hit the floor and broke into a million pieces. Man, that pissed me off like a motherfucker. It was my damn lamp. I'd bought it with the money I'd made off gigs, and I knew it would be as good as new in a few hours. It was a new foreign kind that was just coming out then, the kind that could fix itself, but this shit was still just a pain in the ass. I never did like being disrespected by no women but I just nodded my head. 
Didn't matter what she broke, long as it wasn't my horns. I wouldn't need no lamp where I was going. The Onyx was a nice place inside. Fancy, I mean. Every cat I knew was in there, plus a few I wished I knew. Sonny Rollins was in there, Red Dog, and Aunt Tatum, and Hot Lips Bell and some other cats I recognized, too. We were all outside the green room, waiting. Green room. That shit was funny. It always been called that, but at the Onyx, during these auditions, it really was the green room, with real green frogs inside. That was where cats went in to play their auditions, and the frogs would listen and decide whether they wanted them on the ships. I waited my turn. Everyone was real quiet. More than you'd expect. Through the wall, we could hear drums and bass starting up every once in a while after guys went in. The bass sounded like one of those expensive, self-amplified ones. The kind that looked like a regular bass but got real loud all on its own, except you had to plug it into the wall at night. Cat after cat went in, played for five or ten minutes and left. I sat there with my buddies, Back Pocket and J.J. and Big Jimmy Hunt, and we all just cradled our instruments and watched the TV in the corner of the room. No sound, just called a picture, and waited without talking. Finally, after a few hours of listening and waiting, it was my turn. The door opened, and the skinny white hipster came out and called my name. Robbie Coolidge? That's me, I said, and I followed him into the room. There were a couple of frogs sitting on a couch in there, both of them smoking bouquets of the same damn cigarettes on long metal cigarette holders. They were wearing shades and black suits that didn't hide the bumps they had all over their bodies. They didn't say nothing to me at all. On the other side of a room, a couple more of them hipsters sat there at a small table with piles of old-fashioned paper on it. Nobody bothered to stand or shake my hand. One of them hipsters started talking to me. Didn't introduce himself or nothing. Just started talking. Tenor player. It wasn't no question. Yes, sir. I could also play the alto and the flute. A little. I said, just as cool as I could. You got a manager? Uh, no, sir. I, I managed myself. I wanted to sound cool, but I felt like a damn country negro right then. Well, that's just fine. He said, grinning that white hipster grin of his. Why don't you play us a song, then? So I called the tune, counted it off, and launched into it. The tune I played was one of birds, Confirmation, and I guess that machine knew it, because as soon as I started playing it, bass and drums were piped in from nowhere. They wanted bebop, so I played my best bebop tune. Not bad, the hipster said and the frogs were agreeing, nodding. Can you play anything sweet? He asked, and I played them a chorus of Misty, as soulful and pretty as I could. That was just fine, Mr. Coolidge. Leave us your phone number and we'll call you soon. Thanks. The boss man, Hipster, said when I handed him my name card and one of his sidekicks showed me out. After that, I waited around while my buddies all auditioned, and they all said it had gone pretty much the same. I wondered whether that was a good sign or a bad one. But a few weeks later, I was in the subway when my pocket phone rang. I fished it out of my pants pocket and dialed in my access number on the rotary dial to open the connection. Looking at the face on the little screen for a second, I wondered why this slick, pale-assed young hipster was calling me. 
until I realized it was the same hipster from the Onyx. Mr. Coolidge, he said, I have some good news for you. And that was how I ended up touring the solar system with Big C. The space elevator, that blew me away. It was a fucking gas, man. I only rode up it once, and I swear it was as smooth as Ingrid Bergman's skin or Lena Horne's smile, even though it was going faster than anything I'd ever been in before. J.J. Wilson was the only one of my friends who also got a gig up on the frog ships, and he and I sat there side by side with our seat belts around our waists, looking down through the glass floor. And it wasn't really glass, but we could see through it. At Earth and everything we were leaving behind. It seemed so strange to be looking at the whole world like that. I could see South America, the ocean, some of Africa, clouds and ice on the North Pole and South Pole. I could see places I'd never gone in all the years since then, and probably never will go. Only a few hours before, J.J.'s wife had driven us up into the Catskills where the frog's launch pad had been. She'd cried a little, but soon she was making jokes and small talk. Francine, on the other hand, the first time she called, she was crying. She pleaded with me on my pocket phone till I hung up on her. Then she called back screaming and made me listen to her break plates and windows and shit. I'd felt a little lonely on the way up, and a little bad for her. But after that, I was glad she hadn't come along for the ride, and I was sure I'd done the right thing by leaving her. It was strange, that trip, because I hadn't never seen the Catskills before. Right there by New York, but I never went and saw them till I was leaving to go to outer space. Can you believe it? We caught us a jet up there, one that flew on up almost into space, but then come down again in some mountains up in North Brazil somewhere. I was hoping we might stop by in the city so that we could try some Brazilian chicks. I heard good things about them, Brazilian girls, I mean... But we didn't have time for that. It was straight up to the ships for us. We weren't the only ones strapped down into chairs in the elevator, though. There were all kinds of interesting people in there. There were a couple of skinny Chinese girls with some kind of weird musical instruments, what you might call a zither. And there were a bunch of Mexican and white guys dressed like cowboys with spurs and lassos and all that shit, just like in the Hollywood westerns. There was also this Russian cat in a suit who tried to talk to us through some kind of translator machine, but we couldn't understand him at all. He had a satchel of books with him. And I swear there were about 15 French girls in there with us, too. Cute, with fine cheekbones and low asses and long-ass legs, dressed up in their can-can outfits. I caught one of them looking at me a few times, and I just smiled and reminded myself to look her up sometime. French women, you know. Sometimes they're less racist than American women. They're ladies. But you know, women always bring too much shit along with them when they travel. Those can-can girls each had a big stack of suitcases strapped onto the ground beside them. Every last one of them. Me, I just brought my horns, a couple extra suits, and my music collection. Some on vinyl, some on crystal. When the elevator got to where it was going, we all unstrapped ourselves got out of our seats and stepped into what looked like an airport. I'd pulled on my big old herringbone winter coat, thinking it'd be cold in space, but it wasn't. It was like a train station, and as soon as we were in it, I started hearing a beeping sound. The car they'd given me to hang around my neck was beeping. A glowing red arrow pointed to my left. 
and same for J.J. too. We went off in that direction, following the Can-Can girls, full of hope and dreams of long legs. Turned out we'd all been sent up for the same ship. J.J. and me and the Can-Can girls arrived together in a small waiting room, and the cowboys came a while later. We figured that once the Russian guy showed up and the Chinese girlies, maybe somebody would come and get us. So we just chatted for a while. Turned out the cowboys were rodeo heroes, you know. The guys who rode bulls and catch cows with lassos and shit like that. They'd been hired as entertainers, just like us. One-year contract. Same pay and everything. Man, ain't nobody in the world back then who paid a black man and a white man and a Mexican and a woman the same money for the same gig. Not before them frogs done it. So finally, when the Russian and them Chinese chicks showed up, it was because this big, tall-ass frog in a white suit and tie brought them to the waiting room. Like the frogs I'd seen on Earth, this one was smoking a few black cigarettes on long cigarette holders, all of them poking out of one side of its mouth. It stuck its tongue out and looked at us slowly, one by one, with all of its gigantic eyes on its face and the little ones on its tongue, as if it was checking us against a memorized list of faces. Welcome aboard the space station. This way, please, to the ship that will be your home for the next year. It wasn't the frog itself speaking. The voice came from a speaker on the collar of the frog's suit. It waved its three-tentacled hand at the wall of the waiting room, and the wall slid open. There was a hallway on the other side, and at the far end of the hallway was another door, far away, slowly opening in the same way. We went down the hall in little groups, staying close to the people we'd come with. Walking down that hallway, we all looked like old dogs. Walk with our heads down, bracing for some bad shit to come down on us. But at the end of the hallway, when we came through the second door, you know what we found? Can you guess? The whole place was done up like a big-ass hotel, a cruise ship or something. There was this huge-ass lobby and ballroom, and main stairs leading up and down. One whole wall of the lobby was transparent. You could see right through it to the stars. Frogs wandered every which way. A few cats and fine skinny women of every color here and there. All of them dressed bad. Real hip. Welcome on board the ship Munahunahuna. Ship name sounded something like that, like how people would talk if they had socks in their mouths or something. That was what the frog's language sounded like to me, at least at first. He tried to make it sound like we were guests. Your navigation stubs should guide you to your places of accommodation. Should you have any questions, please feel free to ask any passing staff member who can be identified by the subordinate rank uniforms they are required to wear and which have been modeled on uniforms denoting similar positions in your culture. We will begin preparations tomorrow, and the tour will commence a week henceforth. What's he talking about, man? J.J. asked. His eyes were wide, like he'd seen his grandma's ghost. Follow the little arrow thing to your room, I explained. If you need help with your base, ask a bellboy. First rehearsal's tomorrow. And please give me your instruments, added the frog. They need to be treated specially to withstand both repeated decoherence and space travel. Deco-what? J.J. was very protective of Big Mama, which was what he liked to call his base. 
Hey, can you put one of them self-amplifiers into her? Yes, of course. That was already planned. The alien said, and its eyes went round in circles. Everyone else also, we must collect your instruments. They will be returned to you tomorrow. All right, J.J. said, twisting his head to one side and the other as he leaned on Big Mama in her carrying case, gave the bass one last hug. I handed them my ten of sacks, but I wasn't happy about it. I didn't know what the hell they was going to do to it, but it was a con, and it cost me an arm and a leg to get. But I handed it over. I already had the serial numbers written on a piece of paper in my shoe, just in case. Now listen up. I know me some drugs. I seen what heroin does to a cat, how it robs him of his soul, turns him into a pathetic junkie. I even tried it once or twice, and I know how spun around a cat can get on Benny's, because I've done a lot of them too. I've drunk every damn thing a man can drink. A lot of drinks at the same time, even. I've been so fucked up, I didn't know what planet I was on. But nothing fucks you up like the drugs they gave us on the ships. I first tried them at that first rehearsal, the day after we arrived on the cruise ship. But before we got our own horns back, me and J.J. showed up at the same time and met the cat who was running the music program. He was a fat old brother with a trumpet style nobody ever copied right, nobody ever beat. And his name was Carl Thornton, but everybody called him Big C. He gave us these pills to swallow, three of them, each one a different color. Yellow ones so you can blur the way they like. Blue one fixes you up with a better memory so you can call up everything you ever heard. That one takes a while to kick in. Last one, the green one. That one's for programming memory of all those licks you memorize in your muscles and shit. Instant super chops. That one comes in real quick. You gotta take these sons of bitches every day for six months. Don't forget, or you'll turn your own ass so inside out it ain't even funny. You got it? Uh-huh. Me and J.J. said, and took the pills with a big glass of water. Water didn't taste quite right. Was it nice and a little sweet like back in New York? Big C, he had a bunch of us new guys, enough to play in a big band. He had us all sit down and listen to the old band, outgoing band, who wouldn't be leaving for a couple of days, so we could listen to them and get the hang of things. He told us big bands only went on tour on the frog ships for a year at a time, most times. Man, I didn't know they was looking to make a big band. I hadn't played in one of them for years, but whatever. I sat and listened. Didn't figure I could back out then. It was too late. Well, they started to play. Same old bassy tune, I think it was, but they were playing it so fast I couldn't tell which one. Badass, these cats. They didn't drop a beat. Not a squeak anywhere. They played the head perfectly at what was definitely 300 beats a minute or more. But when the solo section came, I rubbed my eyes and started worrying about them drugs Big C had gave us. Big C, I could see him fine and clear. But the lead alto sax man, when he stood up and started playing a solo, he started to blur. And he wasn't playing one solo, it was two solos at once. And then four solos and five, all of them going in different directions at the same time. He had his horn all the way up, leaning back, 
and screeching altissimo, and he was hunched forward and honking at the low end of his horn. All of that at the same time. Fast lines, slow lines together. He was like a dozen saxophonists in one. The drummer was slowly going out of sync with himself, blurring into a smear of sticks and flashing cymbals, and when I looked close, I could see the cymbals moving and staying still all at the same time. It was one hell of a sight to see, believe me. I tapped J.J. on the shoulder, told him to check that shit out, and he nodded. So I knew I wasn't crazy. It was like ten drummers all playing at once, almost all the same thing, but a little bit off, each one a little bit different. Different cymbal crashes at different times. The downbeat pushed a little forward and a little back all at the same time. But if you listened, in a way, it all fit together somehow. That blew me away. The rest of the band started playing backgrounds, but they weren't blurry. So the shout chorus came in together. A few beats, quiet then, in unison, bop. Then a few bars, then badoo bop. The alto player was playing three octave unisons with himself. I swear I could see his right hand on the bottom keys, fingers moving and totally still at the same time. And then the head of the tune came back, but the whole band was a blur, and everything was craziness, like ten, twenty, a hundred big bands trying to play together and coming close but never lining up the downbeats, pushing them forward and back all the same time, clashing and smashing, it was something else. It was a new kind of music, man. Real out. Like hearing bebop again for the first time, but multiplied by all the dope in the world. Them pills we took, they gonna let us play like that? I suppose so, J.J. Damn! He hollered. And she it! And check these cats out! All at once, in three different voices and he started clapping his hands and not clapping his hands all at the same time. Brother, I've been living with these froghead bastards a long damn time, and trust me, shit ain't right with them. You ever look at one closely? That was Big C. Well, yeah, I answered, looking around his room. They're blurry. Too many eyes. Too many eyes? You ever stop and think that we don't have enough eyes? He squinted at me the way monkeys used to do to people. But that blur, now that's what I'm talking about. He said, waving his hands at me. They're all blurred up like there's a hundred frogs inside every one of them cats walking around doing things. They can't squash themselves into just one person the way we all just do naturally. He wiggled his fingers in front of his face like he was showing me what he meant. And if they're listening to a band, they need the band to blur too, or they just get bored. That's why they like jazz so much. Best damn music in the world. Because we make shit up. We improvise. Can't do that with no damn Mozart, now can you? Classical music, that just bores these frogs to death. Everything all written out and the same every time. The same even when you blur it. I was staring at my hands, watching them blur and unblur. It was kind of like taking a piss. You could control it just by thinking about it. Except I was like a little kid. I didn't know exactly how to control it yet. Just that I could kind of make it happen. You're getting it, Robbie. Just relax into it, man. It'll be like natural soon. So how long you been on these ships, Big C? I asked. He scratched up under his chin back where his beard was shaved off. 
and made a face at me. What year is it now? 1948. Damn. He said, Damn. And he got real quiet and turned his head away so I wouldn't see him cry. Our schedule those first few weeks was crazy. All day practicing and then all night jamming our asses off and hanging out in one another's rooms. Horns in our hands, LPs going. One of the craziest things the drugs did was they let us memorize any kind of music we heard. Hearing it was all it took to program it into our heads. Well, except it was more like your fingers would remember the tune. So we would sit there listening to all kinds of LPs. Bebop, Swing and Ragtime, Bach, Stravinsky, Indian music and whatever. Since we all had good ears, and since we could blur ourselves, each blurred self could listen to a different part of the music. Bass line, harmony lines, and the solo on top of it all so we could come to the end of a record with the whole thing in our heads. Now, this wasn't so new. I could listen to a solo a couple of times and hold it in my head, but what was strange was that after a couple of weeks on them alien drugs, I found I could remember any damn tune I wanted, note for note. I could call up any one of Burr's recorded solos on anthropology. I could call up a big band playing Monk's arrangement of epistrophe, and play the second trombone line on my sax if I wanted. Every line was right there in my head, and in the muscles of my arms and fingers and lips. And if I blurred out and played back that line even once, I could play it again and again, forever, just by deciding to, without even having to think it through. In other words, them alien drugs made each and every one of us into one-man jazz record machines. That was why we spent so much time sitting around listening to everyone else's LPs and crystals. A bunch of us cats blurred out of our minds, laughing and telling ourselves to shut up and soaking that shit up, all of it. There were some bootlegs, too. And man, some of them were amazing. Bird on Mars, one of them was labeled. And that was some crazy, hip, bad music. I could listen to that shit all day long. But you know... Eventually, a cat gets tired of just being around musicians, and he starts wanting himself some jelly. Me, I never had no problem getting me some. Women like me. I like them. But it had been a couple of weeks since I'd gotten any. So I decided to go look up them can-can girls and get me some. I took the elevator down a floor at a time, wandered around till I found them. I saw some crazy-ass sights on the way, too. In one room... There was some kind of Russian circus with these huge, blurred-up clowns juggling fire sticks on the backs of blurry elephants who were dancing to the beat of some scary Russian music. There were all these bears, too, just as blurred as anything, marching around them all. In another room, I saw those rodeo cowboys again, too, riding on blurred-up horses and swinging lassos in a hundred directions at once. But this one guy I saw, he wasn't just blurred. He split from himself, ran in ten different directions at once, after a bull that blurred and split up in the same damn way. Some of him caught the bull and roped it. Some of him got stomped by it. One of him even got gored in the stomach. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's horns. Poor bean-eating bastard. But finally... I got down about ten floors below our floor, which was under the big-ass lobby. All the signs there were in French, so I knew I was in the right place. I went from room to room and saw a bunch of them blurry frogs in these salons, smoking their cigarettes and talking in their weird voices while skinny East Indian girls in old-fashioned Oriental clothing served them dainty little white teacups full of funky tea and whatever else frogs drank. But finally I found the auditorium where the girls danced the can-can. That was the orchestra's night off, so the girls were practicing to these crazy recordings of blurred-up can-can music. When I walked in, they were dancing, those French can-can girls, and they was fine. All long, strong legs going up and down, arms on each other's shoulders. Ain't nothing in the world turns a cat on like seeing women touch each other, except seeing their legs up in the air. So I sat there and watched their legs go up and down, down and up, scissoring blurs, and I blurred myself too so I could see them clearly. I scanned up and down the line of them until I found the one I remembered from the elevator and let her faces burn into my mind. After they finished, I went and found my way backstage. There was a bunch of green rooms. It was all crazy. Every girl had her own little green room on that floor, but I didn't know which one she was in. That fine-built woman I picked out from the can-can lineup, so I blurred myself and went up to all the green rooms I could, knocked on every one of them at once. The door where she answered, I unblurred myself over to that one and smiled at her with that innocent country boy smile like I always used to do on women. She was wearing some kind of silk kimono, you know, one of them Japanese-type housecoats, and her hair was down, and I could hear jazz wafting out from behind. Heard that jazz, and I knew I was in. You're the one I have seen in the elevator, we? The one who kept looking at me? But why have you come here? Well, I thought about it and decided I missed you. She mumbled something in French, something that sounded a little like I'd be needing to try some other can-can girl next. But then she opened the door wide and smiled at me. Come in, monsieur. Coolidge, I said and took off my fedora to bow to her all charming, the way women like when you first meet them. Robbie Coolidge. I stepped into the room and could hear the music clearly. It was Nat King Cole, Stardust. 
Her can-can outfit was draped over the makeup mirror with the light bulbs all around it, huge peacock feathers sticking up above our heads, and I could smell the methylated smoke in the air. I am called Monique, she said. No last name then, just Monique. Then she asked, Would you like some coffee? Mm, yeah, coffee sounds good. She excused herself for a minute, and when she came back, she had two cups of coffee in her hands. You have cigarette? She asked. I nodded. Got a whole pack, I said, and I fished it out of my coat pocket and set it on the table with a pack of matches on top. They were Mercury Baron's Ultras, the new kind that was supposed to make you live longer if you smoked three a day. Want one? None, she said and smiled. Maybe later. The coffee was fine. Really good French coffee. Steaming. Even the damn steam smelled good. I held the cup up and breathed deep and looked at her sipping from her own cup. So where you from, I asked, as she stared at me for a few minutes. She rubbed an eyelid and a little of the makeup smudged. I don't think you really care, do you? She asked and sipped her coffee. Sure, girl, I care, I lied. And she leaned forward and blurred herself. And a million breathy whispers of gay Paris tickled in my ear. That ended up being the night the ship took off from Mars, though Monique and I were too busy to notice. We only found out later when one of the guys in the band ended up wandering into the lobby and noticing the stars were moving, nice and slow, but still moving. It was a couple of weeks before Monique was in the habit of coming up and listening to the band play, and some of the guys didn't like it. That was when some of the cats in the band were starting to act all high and mighty, turning into what my father used to call political Negroes and taking it upon themselves to tell everyone else how a black man ought to live. What made me real sad was that J.J. had fallen in with that pack of nuts. He used to be real nice, real cool and thoughtful. He'd always been a soulful kind of cat, but when he was with them space Muslim gun flappers, talking all that nonsense about how the black man was supposed to colonize the solar system for Allah's glory, and to show the white devil man and all that. I couldn't stand to be around him. I hated it when he talked that bullshit. So this one day, between sets, I'm sitting there at one of the tables with Monique and having a nice time. She's drinking wine, and I'm having a cigarette, and we're talking. And J.J. comes up with this look on his face. I knew it was trouble, that look. I stood up before he got close and said, J.J., I already got one daddy. And he's in Philly, so I don't need you to... Robin, damn you, you listen to me, he said, and glanced at Monique as if she might leave if he glanced at her the right way. Who is he? She asked, standing up. Sit down, Monique, I said firmly, and she instantly got that look on her face. You know the look, the one women get when you tell them what to do for their own good. Robin, something's going on around here. We got a cutout, brother. Them frogs, they been in my room, man. They put something inside my stomach, like a worm. No, a woman, yeah, a woman worm. She been crawling inside my stomach, screaming, like, J.J., J.J., give me some ice cream. Help me, Robbie, I'm fucking dying here, man. He screamed and blurred before my eyes, all his voices screaming at me at once. Poor cat was scared shitless. He scared the shit out of me, too. 
I pushed Monique off to the side and blurred myself, and each of them reached out till one of them blurs a JJ. JJ, each of me said all together. Listen, JJ, you sick or something, man? You need to cool it. Cool it right now. He screamed louder, each of him starting to shake, and his blurred cells started moving farther and farther apart. I didn't want him to pull me apart like that, too, so I quickly unblurred myself, relaxed back into one, and stepped back from him. A couple of big old badass frog bouncers smeared themselves out into an army and rushed around the room in pairs, grabbing all his blurred cells and hauling them, every last one of J.J.'s cells screaming at the top of its lungs, out one of the exits of the room. The room went tense and quiet, and many eyes, frog and human alike, were on me and Monique. Whispering started, and I caught Big C's eye. Set breaks over. His look said, Back on the damn bandstand now. So I tried to kiss Monique on the cheek. She pulled away a little, but I still got her for a second and hurried back up with my tenor in hand. Apologies, everyone. Big C said into the microphone with a big fake smile on his face. Show must go on, like they say. Luckily for us, we've got a Mfingi in the house who's proficient at bass. Mfingi, that's what the frogs call themselves. Then Big C started saying some bizarre sounds, and I thought he was going crazy too. Until some stank old frog in a tight black suit stood up and bowed his big old froggy head at Big C. Then I realized those weird-ass sounds were this frog's name. Come on up and join us, Big C said, and the frog came up on stage, picked up J.J.'s bass with his three tentacled hands, and strummed the strings to check the tuning. Damn shame, said Winslow Jackson, the alto player who sat beside me on the bandstand. He and Big C were almost the only guys who had toured before. Seen too many, many guys end up like that. How's that, I asked, wondering if maybe some of the outer space had got into the ship and fucked with J.J.'s head. Must have forgot to take his pills, Jackson said, shaking his head. It's a damn shame. Not taking your pills for one day would make you go crazy like that? I ain't never heard of no drug like that. And to this day, I'm not so sure it was the pills at all. What if I had took my pills every day and ended up the same as him anyway? Poor J.J., I didn't know whether I'd ever see him again, but I didn't have any time to worry about that. Big C was talking to the crowd again, and I had to get ready to play. Before we dig into the music, I'd like to share some important news with you. We have arrived at Mars orbit. Big C hollered into the mic, and behind him, a piece of wall just suddenly went transparent. Everyone turned to look at the red planet out there except Big C, who kept talking about how exciting it was to be playing at Mars again, how much he enjoyed it every time. Mars! We were at Mars! That shit blew my mind! And now we have another special guest who's going to join us. Big C said into the microphone, A short, weird-ass-looking frog got up, a long black bassoon under his arm, and started walking toward us. He was wearing a fine brown suit, tight as a motherfucker, and a brown fedora hat that matched his fern-colored frog skin. He waved his little tail behind him as he got up onto the stage. Everyone welcome. Heavy gills. Mahun Hungen. Big C said. 
The names were starting to be more and more pronounceable to me, a fact I didn't exactly appreciate. Big C turned from the microphone and faced us, snapping his fingers on two and four, and loudly whispered, Stardust. We all got our horns ready, and he nodded, and the rhythm section started us off with a mild blur. We usually played it as a tenor lead tune, meaning it was usually my solo. But of course, when you have a guest feature sitting in, the melody gets played by the guest, so I just improvised harmonies with the other saxes. The bassoon was awful, like a dog being beat down by a drunk master. It wasn't music. Ain't no other way to say it. He played the whole time blurred up so bad that not a damn thing fit together. The tunes didn't line up right. There was no fugue or harmony or counterpoint I could find. It was just like a bunch of jumbles laid on top of one another. I swear, I got dizzy just hearing it. He ended the tune by playing a high E and a high F natural and a high D sharp all together. This ugly, dissonant, sustained cluster that went all through the outro and kept going for two minutes after the rest of the band had stopped playing. At the end of it, all the frogs in the audience cheered and groaned and waved their tentacle hands in the air, which was their way of clapping. And I hunkered down for a long night of bullshit. So J.J., he came back a week later. I saw him drinking coffee in one of the open bars when I came back from window shopping with Monique in the station dome on Mars. Not that there was anything for me to buy, or that I had any money. That was all waiting for me back on Earth. But there was a lot to see on the station at Mars in those days. I even picked myself up a real live Mars rock. Still got it, too, at my house. Hi, said to J.J., he looked up at me and blinked and sniffed the air. Hello. How are you? I'll see you at rehearsal tomorrow. And then he turned back to his coffee as if I'd already walked away. Still, weird as that was, I didn't quite believe it when Big C told me he wasn't J.J. no more. Might seem like it. Might talk like it. But he ain't J.J. Big C said. They made some kind of living copy of him. Fix it up all wrong. Fix it up to think more like them than like us. And now he just plain ain't J.J. no more. Just accept it. Me, I figured that Big C had been on the ships long enough to have lost his mind, too. But thinking back on that conversation, I could see that J.J. was different. He talked like some kind of white lawyer or something. For one, his voice all stiff and polite. And when time came for the next rehearsal, his playing was dead. There wasn't nothing original in it, no spark. I'd listen along to his bass lines, and then go back to my room and listen to my LPs, and I'm telling you, there wasn't a single line he played after he came back that wasn't lifted out of someone else's playing. But I really knew it wasn't him because of the time I finally saw how he got himself off. He even dropped hints every once in a while, but I never figured it out until one night when I went to get back some Mingus LP I'd loaned him. I banged on his door. I knew he was in there, but he didn't answer. So finally I opened the door myself, and there he was on his bed with two frogs on top of him, tentacles stuck down his throat, wrapped round his legs, slithering their eyed tongues all over his balls and shit. I slammed the door and just about threw up. J.J., 
He'd always been as much of a sex freak as any other cat in any band I played with, and maybe he was so pent up with all that celibate living that the space Muslims got him thinking he had to do. Maybe his balls got so blue he lost his mind, but he'd never, ever talked about screwing no frogs. That was what convinced me, finally, that J.J. was gone. I found Monique in the lobby a few days after that, staring out the window at the stars. I hadn't seen her around in a week and a half. Hadn't gone down to the French floor. But we were already on our way to Jupiter. It was supposed to take a month or two to get out there, and we'd stay for a week or so. Oh, that's what Big C told us. There was a lot to see and do on all the moons, and some shows not to be missed. Where you been, girl? I asked her. Busy, she said. Very busy. Doing what? I asked, as innocently as I could. One of our girls. She's sick. She was taken away by Le Grenoyer, she said and made a face. Must have forgotten to take her pills, I said almost to myself. Eh? Quoi? Monique said. She surprised me. I looked at her. Qu'est-ce I said she must have forgotten to take her pills, like what happened to J.J. None, she said. One of the alligator. Frogs, I corrected her. Frog, oui. Les grenouilles. One of the frog. He asked her to come to his room, and she said no. And the next day she became very sick. Suddenly I could see J.J. in my head with those tentacles in his mouth and wrapped around his legs. I couldn't stand to think about all that again. But baby, you're okay, right? I took her hand. She turned and looked at me with those eyes of hers, green like Chinese jade. I want to go home, she said, and squeezed my hand. I don't know how you can think you are falling in love on a frog ship. I don't know how anyone can believe in love in an horrible place like this. Baby, come with me, I said to her. Oui, I will come with you, but I will not love you, Robbie, she said and squeezed my hand a little. And you must not love me either. And then she turned her head and looked out at all them stars for a little while more. The month we spent traveling out to Jupiter passed so damn fast. All blurred, awkward sex and blurred, awkward music, and J.J. all sad and serious up there on his base, and that dumb, stank-ass frog, Heavy Gills Bahunhungun, sitting in on his sad-ass bassoon at least once a week. The band still played like a well-oiled machine, still hit every note exactly right, but there was something going wrong, and I think we all could feel it. Then one day, right in the middle of our show, Big C does that hamming up thing he was always good at. And the wall went all transparent, and I swear, Jupiter, fucking Jupiter, was right there in front of us, covering the whole window. It looked like a giant bowl of vanilla ice cream and caramel and chocolate sauce, all melted together and mixed up, with a big red cherry in the middle of it. It was big, man. Biggest thing I ever saw with these little moons floating around it. I couldn't breathe for a second. I looked out into the audience for Monique, but she wasn't at the table I'd left her at. 
Too bad. She would have loved to see Jupiter like that. Right there in front of us. Now, as you all know, the orbit of Jupiter is a special place. A place where many people travel and choose to stay because it's so beautiful. While you're here, you should all go down to Io and use this opportunity to see some of the greats of jazz. People like Charlie Parker, Lester Young, Duke Ellington, Dizzy Gillespie, Cab Calloway, Johnny Hodges. Don't miss them. When I heard that, I couldn't believe my ears. Bird? How could they have Bird up here when I'd seen him in New York? Had he come back for another tour? I had no idea how that could be. I didn't think it through so good, though, then. My mind went right back to that other name. Lester Young. Now, Big C said, in honor of the jazz mecca that we're at, we're going to play a little tune called The Jupiter's Moon's Blues. He counted us in. Four, five, four, five, six, seven. And what do you know but that damn frog's bassoon started up again with the head. By then, I swear I would have broken the thing over Heavy Gill's Mahunhungun's head if I ever got the chance. I'd heard so much of it. There was all kinds of cool shit to do on them moons. Submarine trips to Europa and Ganymede. Volcano jumps on Io. They even let us humans ride along in these special ships that could drop down to the atmosphere of that badass old Jupiter himself and see the critters that the frogs had transplanted there from some planet near where they came from. But none of that interested me. Some of the cats in the band, they told me, Robbie, man, what you doing missing a chance to see all this fine shit? Man, all I want to see, I told them, is Lester Young. I'm going to go see the Prez. The club on Io was small and quiet. The frogs didn't get interested in jazz until sometime after they'd checked out everything else that their people had done on Jupiter and the moons. And since Oz was the only cruiser to show up for a while, right away was the best time to go in and check out the Prez. That's what we used to call Lester Young, Prez, because he used to be, and according to me, up till that day still was, the president of the tenor saxophone. Man. That sound. I'd seen him in New York a few times, and a bunch of times in Philly, too. And he always had it, that thing, what Monique always called je ne sais quoi, which means who the fuck knows what. Man, before the war, Prez always had that up there in his sweet, sweet sound. Anyway, Monique and me, we ended up in this little club in a bubble floating over Io. There were these big windows all over where you could look out onto the volcanoes spitting fire and smoke and shit. There was even one of them windows in the club, and Monique kept looking out of it. Prez wasn't playing when we got there. It was too early, so some other cats were on the bandstand. Trio cats. Didn't know their names, but I was pretty sure I'd met the pianist before. They were all right. Sometimes guys like Prez, man, they did even better with those plain bread-and-butter rhythm sections, playing that kind of old swing style. It was all about his beautiful voice, his sound. Waiting for prayers, I could hear his tenor sound, man, that touch of vibrato, that strong, gentle turn in his melody, 
riding his own beat, just a little off of the base. You know what I mean? Monique started to get bored, I could tell. She fiddled with her hair, looked out at the volcanoes. Baby, Prez should be on soon, I told her. She frowned at me. That sexy baby I'm pissed off kind of frown. I want to go for a walk, see the bubble. We'd pass some nice shop windows and cafes out there. I guess she really wanted to go shopping. But it also felt a little bit like a test. And I never in my life let no woman test me. You go on. Go shopping if you want. But me, I ain't going to miss press for the world. Not a tune. Not a single damn note. Fine, she said and adjusted her purse. I'll be back later. Maybe, she added with a pout and turned on her high heel and marched out, adjusting her hair as she went, and wiggling her ass because she knew I was checking it. I didn't give a shit, man. French can-can girls, you can get any old time if you really want one, but there wasn't nowhere to see Lester Young except on Io. This was my last chance to see him in my life, unless he came back to Earth, and he'd been in bad shape the last time I'd seen him. Well, I ended up sitting there through half an hour of mediocre rhythm section ad-lib, sipping my deep Europa iced tea. That's what they call a Long Island iced tea in that place, the only drink I could afford. But finally, Prez showed up. Now seeing Prez that time, hearing him play, it was kind of like the first time you had sex. I don't mean waking up from a dirty dream and finding your bed all sticky, neither. I mean, the first time you're with some girl a year ahead of you in junior high school, and you go upstairs in her house when her mama's out, and maybe you kiss on her a little, and then you put it in her, and a minute or two later you're wondering just what happened, and is that it, and why everyone is always making a big deal about that shit? It was a shame and a huge motherfucking letdown is what I'm trying to say. Prez, he used to be a little fucked up. Not when he was younger, before the war. Back then, that cat had some kind of magic power, man. People always wanted him to play like Hawk. I mean, Coleman Hawkins. But he didn't listen to nobody. He played his own sound, and it was beautiful. He had this way of making melodies just sing. So sweet, it'd break your heart in half. But then they sent him to war. And seeing as he was black, they never put him in the army band. Just who exactly do you think you are, boy, Glenn Miller? Off to the front line with you, nigger. That's how it was. Folks said it wasn't surprising, him not having his head on straight after all that happened to him, being sent to fight in Europe, and what he saw in Berlin after the Russians dropped that bomb they got from the frogs onto the city, how he got stuck in a barracks in Paris for all that time after, fighting the local Reds, and what happened after we pulled out of Europe, where they court-martialed his ass because his wife was a white woman, and didn't take shit off the other soldiers for it. After all that, they said that something inside him was broke, broke in a way that could never be fixed. Well, you know, I was hoping that maybe that the frogs had somehow fixed him up, like they'd done with Bird, when I'd seen him, standing tall, cleanest cat you ever seen, with a big old smile and a fine suit, and the same old pork pie hat he always wore, I started to think maybe they'd done the world a service, brought back the president of the tenor saxophone. So anyway, he lifted that horn of his up to his lips, 
with the neck screwed in a little sideways so the body of the horn was lifted up off to the side the way he always used to do. And as he started to blow polka dots and moonbeams, my heart sank. Didn't sound like the real Lester Young. Not the prez I knew. It sounded like some kind of King Tut mummy Lester Young sound. Like the outside shape of his sound was still there, but there was something important inside it had been took out. I'm sure nobody else there could hear it, but I could. I knew it right away. I could feel my heart splitting in two as I just sat there and watched the prez, the man who'd been the prez, drifting his way through tune after tune. It was all right, that floating sound of his, the way he always waited loose with the rhythm, the sweet tone, the little burst forward, and then the cool leaning back thing he'd do after it. But there was something missing. Then it hit me what was wrong. I knew every last one of the solos he was playing. Not the tunes, I mean. Not just the heads and changes. I mean, I knew every damn note he played. He wasn't improvising at all. Everything, every lick, was from his old recordings. My Funny Valentine. I cover the waterfront. Afternoon of a Bessiette. Every damn note was off one of his old pre-war LPs. He was playing it all exactly the same way he'd played it in the studio, at live shows, anywhere he'd been recorded. I knew because I had all them same recordings up in my head too, every last one of them. So I just sat there, staring at him with tears in my eyes, and waited for it to be over. But you know, during the first set break, he came over and sat with me. Of all the people he could have sat with, all the people who'd come to Io just to see him, he came and sat with me, probably the only cat in the place who was disappointed with what he'd heard. You're a saxophone player, aren't you, young man? He said, suave as ever, but a bit too cool. He must have seen me eyeing his fingers on the horn. Yes, sir, I am. I'm from Philadelphia. My name's Robbie Coolidge. Might you happen to be a tenor player by any chance? Yes, sir, I said, nodding. Mind if I join you here, seeing as you lost your hat and all? He said, hand on the back of the chair. By hat, he meant Monique. Everyone knew that was the way Prez talked. Funny names for everything. Hat was a new one, though. My people are in need of a little rest, is all. He said, and wiggled his fingers. That was what he called his fingers, his people. And, of course, I told him I didn't mind and offered to buy him a drink. And he laughed and said, now that all the drinks were free for him, he didn't want liquor no more. And then he just started talking to me, asking how old I was, asked me if I missed my mama's cooking. I didn't. My mama was a terrible cook. She used food as a kind of weapon when she was mad at me. I didn't tell him that. Then he told me about his own mama's cooking. I don't remember exactly what he said, honestly. What I remember was his careful, quiet smile and his bright big eyes lit by some exploding volcano out the big dome window and how damn happy he seemed to be remembering his mama in the kitchen, the smells and flavors coming back to him across all those years and all those miles from when he'd sat at the kitchen table waiting for dinner. And don't ask me how I knew, but right then I realized that they'd done to him whatever they'd done to J.J. and to Bird and that Lester Young, whoever he was, 
he was gone from the world. Same as J.J., and maybe same as Bird, even. All that was left of the prayers was a shell, filled with something that was supposed to be him but wasn't. That was what I was talking to, and it was all I could do not to cry in his face. At the end of the set break, when he got up to play again, he told me, Get off the ship, son. Get yourself on back to the Apple Corps. Which was what he started calling Harlem after the war. You're way too young for this kind of life. A little after he'd started to play again, Monique came in. I just took her by the hand, and we left. Listen, you jive-ass Negroes. Just listen to me for a minute. This shit they got us playing, man, it ain't jazz. I don't know what the fuck it is, but it ain't human music. Jazz is for humans, my brothers. Some of them Muslim brothers were nodding their heads as I said this, but I knew one or two of them who wasn't going to go along with this so easy. Boy, you all wet. You signed a damn contract. It was Albert Grubbs, just like I expected. I forget the Muslim name he'd gone and taken for himself. But anyway... I knew him as Albert Grubbs, and sure enough, a few years later, everyone else did too, once he dropped all that religious bullshit. But right then, he was dead against us doing anything to upset relations with the frogs, because he was still big on the whole space Muslim thing at the time. They figured, if we was good enough Uncle Toms, the frogs might give us some ships of our own and let us fly around the solar system so we could brag about beating white people to it. He looked about ready to start quoting the Koran or Muhammad or something like that. So I stood up. I wasn't going to rehearse no more till we talked it all out. Yeah, I signed a contract. You signed a contract, too. You know who else signed a damn contract? J.J. And look at him now. Everyone turned and looked at him, and he was just polishing his base oblivious. And he turned and said, What? Everyone knows he ain't the same. Don't matter if you never met him before he got on this ship. He used to be goofy and funny and clean, man. Took care of his ass. Now look at him, I said and cleared my throat. Hey, J.J., I called out. What's your favorite movie? What's your favorite kind of ice cream? Shut up, man, he said. His voice sounded deader than the worst junkies. Leave me alone. Grubbs had a sour look on his face. He was shaking his head. But some of the other space Muslims, they were nodding and mumbling to one another. Wasn't none of them going to colonize nothing if they all ended up like J.J. See? See that? I'm telling you, I said. The longer we stay on, the more of us end up like J.J. It was Big C, nodding his fat, bald head. The kid's got a point. I'd done something like six tours of the solar system. And one quick trip out to Alpha Centauri, too. And you know, there's always one or two guys who get messed up like that. Sometimes more. Lately, it's been more like three or four guys a trip. I've been starting to wonder when my time is going to come. This started the guys murmuring, discussing, disagreeing. Grubbs and the older guy, another space Muslim, I remember was calling himself Yakub El Hassan, one of the trombone players, they stood up to start preaching. I knew I had to do something quick. Hey, Big C, I said. Tell me, you know anything about what happened to Charlie Parker? Not even Grubbs had the guts to interrupt Big C. And that was the story that turned the tide.
Bird. Man, Bird had been right there on that same ship as we were on. At least that was how Big C told it. He'd gone off dope, but was still drinking like a fish. Whiskey and wine. Still eating fried chicken by the five-pound servant. Still smoking three packs of cigarettes a day. All of which, especially the liquor, was killing him. They took him away. And some of what they'd done to him. Some of it gave him back what he lost in Camarillo. That's for sure. But what they did to him was even worse. Killed off whatever was left from before Camarillo. Bird, man, he was ruined. All busted up inside. All he could play was shit off records. Now he played it crazy and slant. It was beautiful for what it was, but still, that was all he could do anymore. And to tell the truth, I heard they got copies of him. Extras. So they could have him around later. That whatever they took out of him, they kept it for the copies. The guys were all scared then, all confused, and I knew finally I could maybe change their minds. Even Grubbs looked like he was starting to have his doubts, starting to feel like maybe we did have to make a stand. Man, you gotta think about it this way. They ain't gonna copy nobody who don't play what they like, I said. I mean, is this any better than slavery? Having your body copied, and the most important part of you carried out into space? Your soul, I said, hoping space Muslims believed in souls. Okay, so what can we do? Stop playing? Asked Jakob, still defiant. And though even Grubbs finally looked like he was ready to do something, he was nodding as if to say, yeah, what can we do? Nuh-uh, I said. We stop playing. Maybe they leave us on Jupiter or something. So we keep the contract. We play, but we play shit they don't like. We never know. They might even drop us off at home early. And the only thing I ever promised when I signed up for this was that I'd play jazz, man. I'm liking the sound of this. Big C said, nodding his head. Anything in mind? Oh yeah, I got something in mind. Let's go back to my place, I said. I've got some LPs for us to listen to. Some new tunes to learn. Big C grinned his big old MC grin and looked out into the crowd of frogs. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, and whatever else you might happen to be. We're glad to be back on the bandstand after our week off at Jupiter. We've got a whole new repertoire lined up for you which we worked hard to get ready, and we just know it's going to make a big splash. Welcome back, and remember, we're the house band for the rest of the tour. Then he turned and faced the band, snapping his fingers, one, two, one, two, three, four. Then Jimmy Roscoe started the tune with a solo on the piano. Straight no chaser it was that night, my favorite monk tune. The band came in after a couple of bars, and not a damn one of us blurred. It wasn't just that we were playing Monk, but we didn't even blur when we played it. That made them crazy. The arrangement was lifted right off a Monk piano performance. The brass clanging out the tone clusters, and the saxes singing out his jagged solo in unison. I never saw a room full of frogs clear out so fast, man. Not at first, of course. Most of them waited until we segued into Trinkle Tinkle, and they couldn't stand it no longer. 
When aliens got sick off Monk, sometimes they even puked. It wasn't pretty. Man, one of the most beautiful things I ever saw in my life was old Heavy Gills slipping on some purple alien puke on the way out, falling right on his bassoon and snapping it in half. I still don't know what it was about Monk that always turned them upside down like that. Even Monk didn't know. Later, after I got back, I told him, Monk, about that night, and it cracked him up. He said some scientist had come in and seen him with some kind of theory, equations, and charts, and numbers. But he told me he figured the answer was a whole lot simpler than that. It's just a gift, he said, and he winked. Anyway, the trip home, man. It was a lot quicker than we expected. We just played a few monk tunes at the start of every set, and the few frogs who even bothered to show up left quick. And then we had the ballroom to ourselves. For a while, we started playing around with what we could do in music without blurring. We could still make our fingers remember anything, could still remember any music we'd heard since going on board. I'm still that way. All these years later, I got so many damn tunes in my head, it's like a music library, even now. But of course, we didn't just work all the time. We jammed, and most of us, except the few who were still trying to be space Muslims, drank all night and started bringing in the can-can girls. I talked Monique into stirring them up, and you know, they were French. They loved their revolutions. So they was refusing to blur during their can-can dances, and their auditorium was just as empty as our ballroom, and they had all the time in the world to come and drink and hang around with us. All those French girls around, tempting our Muslims from their righteous path and fooling around with the rest of us, it was like heaven for a while. I think the only people who blurred anymore were the cowboys, because most of them were having the time of their lives chasing those blurred-up cows around all blurred up themselves like that, and some of the animals in the Russian circus because they didn't know no better. And maybe that Russian guy, too, though him and the Chinese chicks I never did see again. So anyway, we were supposed to have gone out to Pluto, but a few days off Jupiter... The complaints got so bad that Big C was called up to go see the man. I mean, the frogs running the ship. But when he came back, he said the frogs agreed we were playing jazz, just like in the contract. And the contract didn't say nothing about no monk, so there was nothing they could do. I half expected them to start lynching our asses, but they didn't. The ship went ahead, and turned around, and headed for Earth, just as fast as it fucking could. Me and Monique, we had a fine old time pottering the nights away, night after night, but we knew this trip wasn't going to last forever. Marry me, I said to her one night, when we were lying in bed, both of us smoking. I wasn't sure I meant it, wasn't sure I wanted to marry anyone at all, but it sounded like the thing to say. Robbie, she said, I know you, you are musician. You don't need a wife. You're like a bluebird in the sky. I puffed on the cigarette. I guess you're right, baby. Let's enjoy the time we have. And when we get home, we don't have to say goodbye. Only see you around later. I laughed a little. No, you mean see you later or see you around, baby, not... Whatever, she said and yanked the sheets off me. You know, when we got to Earth, we landed in Africa. 
Africa, man, the motherland, the place where all our music started. I was in Africa. The funny thing was, I didn't give a shit. I wanted to get back to New York, to the clubs on West 52nd, to Mittens. But it took time. We came down an elevator near some city whose name I can't remember, in what was then still Belgian Congo, which was lousy with wealthy Belgian refugees by then, and we rode down into town in jeeps. Monique sat with me, held my hand, but I couldn't see her face through the sunglasses she wore. She had this big sun hat on, huge thing I'd never seen before, and she kept looking out across the hillsides. Finally, when we got into the city, that was it. I lifted her suitcase out of the back of the jeep, and there we were. The guys from the band off to one side, waiting for me so we could all catch a flight back to New York, and all them can-can girls off to the other side, waiting for her so they could all go back to Paris. And there we were in the middle. What are you going to do, I said. I am not coming to New York, she said. I know. What are you going to do? I am going to go to Paris, she said, but the French way, Paris. I am going to tell people what I have seen and ask everyone to stop cooperating with Le Grenouille. Which was exactly what she did, too. And on until the frogs finally just up and left. Not that they left because of her, I don't think, but she never stopped fighting them. That sounds good, I said, and I looked at her hands. How about you? She said, a little more softly. Me? I'm a musician, Monique. I'm going to go home and play me some music. I kissed her, and I wanted that kiss to be magic, like in the stories your folks read you when you're a little kid. When a kiss wakes up a princess or saves the world, that kind of shit. But all that happened was that she kissed me back for a little while. And then she was gone. It was a hell of a thing getting back to New York like that. Not just all the new buildings or them new flying cars zipping around like they own the place, crashing into one another. The damn frogs. They were pissed at all of us for that tour. Those sons of bitches over at the Onyx. They'd already tore up all the contracts. And I didn't ever see more than a few thousand dollars from the whole thing. Which was bullshit, really, since I'd signed up for a cool million and been gone for almost half the time I'd signed up for. But you know, in the end, I didn't give a shit. Those pills I took, none of them had worn off yet. Most of them still haven't. Even now, it's been decades. My mama, she used to say, Take whatever lemons you get in life, boy, and you go on and make yourself some lemonade. My mama... She couldn't cook to save her life, but she knew something all right. So I started making lemonade. I got myself one of those new typewriter phones that everyone was buying and sent a phone letter to my buddies from the band. And on Monday nights, we started meeting down under the 145th Street Bridge. Man, down under that bridge with them new flying cars buzzing overhead, we invented a new kind of music. It was all about playing together, and at the same time, like in old-fashioned Dixieland music, except that we were swinging it, hard, real hard, and half of it 
was made of chunks of music from the libraries in our heads. Everyone who showed up there, we'd been up on the ships, so we all had libraries in our heads. Our fingers were programmed, you know, so we could play anything back that we wanted. You could start with a little monk, then switch over to bird, throw in a little prayers, and of course there was room for whatever else you wanted to play up there too. And man, did we play! All that memory and all those programmable chops that they gave us to make up for the fact that playing in blurred was so hard, we used all of that. After a few months, we found none of us could blur anymore, even if we wanted to. But we didn't even care. We were doing something new, man. And all the music that's come after, you can hear some of what we did right in there. Still. Time came years later when all of that would start to sound old-fashioned, when people would start talking shit about us for that, criticizing us for ever having gone onto them frog ships, and even blaming us for what happened in Russia and Europe, which is just crazy. Man, when we were fighting back, that was the first time ever where anything like that had been done, at least with the frogs. It was all new. It's easy to disrespect people making mistakes before you were born. Way easier than worrying about not making your own mistakes. That's just bullshit, trying to fill us up with regret for all that's long gone now, like the frogs. Shit, maybe there are things I regret, like leaving Francine the way I did, or how I totally stopped visiting JJ in the asylum after we got back. But mostly my regrets are for things that ain't my fault. I regret seeing Prez the way he ended up, for instance. And I regret never seeing Big C again. And Monique, for that matter. I used to think all about that a lot. After I first got back. Man, I remember lots of times when I used to stand there under the bridge while everyone was playing back all their favorite lines from old records we knew and I'd look up into the sky and find Jupiter. It's easy, you know, just look up. Looks just like a star, a bright old star up there. I'd stare on up at Jupiter back then and think of prayers and blow a blues on my horn. The baddest old motherfucker of a blues that anybody, anywhere, ever heard in the world. Right. Uh, Lester Young and the Jupiter's Moon's Blues. So this was a story I wrote in Seattle at the Clarion West Workshop. If you don't know that workshop, it's uh, it's for science fiction, fantasy, and other speculative fiction writers. It's a, a six-week-long workshop in the summer. Basically, a bunch of writers get together and live in a house and write. And we have... Um, instructors who are you know very well-known um, science fiction writers or editors and this story was for week six that was the week that Werner Vinge was our instructor and it was terrifying because it was Werner Vinge right and so like all the science fiction writers in the group I really wanted to produce something uh, presentable for some reason I decided I was going to write a story about um, jazz jazz musicians aliens and so I went over to the library, got myself a copy of the the autobiography of Miles Davis. 
Now, if you enjoyed this story, um, if you uh, if you got a kick out of hearing all of the strange old lingo or uh, the attitude even of Robbie, um, the, the, Miles Davis is the model for for Robbie uh, for his voice for some of his attitude and like that. Uh, and, and I really consider this story um, a kind of tribute to Miles Davis in that uh, not only did I draw on his way of speaking, but also in that, in a sense, this is kind of a remix of, of, of him. I mean, Robbie is, in a sense, a kind of remix of Miles Davis's character in that autobiography. So you should check that out if you, uh, if you are interested in, or if you enjoyed this story. And I, I was quite surprised, actually, uh, at the reaction that, that uh, Lester Young, the Jupiter's Moons, uh, Jupiter's Moons Blues got. You know, I thought, oh, this is jazz. This is quite a niche thing. Not a lot of people are going to be interested, but it seems to have gotten quite a good reaction, even, I think, among people who aren't interested so much in jazz that really blows me away that that's something i'm really happy about so we did the workshop um uh, and by the way i think i started writing the story on a thursday evening and it ended up being finished in time to be just put aside for proofreading uh, by about sunday at lunchtime or maybe a little earlier because i remember this because i went to my first baseball game um right after finishing it so jazz and baseball that's a very american weekend I suppose, since I'm Canadian, I think a lot of Canadians go to baseball games, but I don't remember ever having gone to one before that weekend in Seattle. Let's see. My classmates gave me a lot of great feedback. Werner Vinge gave me a lot of great ideas about things I could do with this story or with the setting. And uh, I got some more advice from Ellen Dotlow, who very kindly took uh, interest in the story. A friend of mine named Stephanie Denise Brown who's also a, a writer, um, gave me some great feedback as well. Um, but, uh, but in fact, the story was fairly similar to the original draft. I mean, what you, what you just heard in the podcast, it's, gonna, it's basically a lot like what I wrote in Seattle. So the story did kind of come out like jazz in a way. Uh, I mean, sort of as a sudden flood which isn't surprising. I think that's probably a testament to the nature of uh, of that particular workshop of uh, being with those particular people in a house for six weeks. It was it was quite a, a uh, how can I say a roiling pot of creativity, um, bubbling and boiling with all kinds of strange things in it. So the the story uh, pretty much I. I put it aside for a long time, uh, so showed it to a couple of people to get some uh, some feedback, but um, yeah, I took my time, and finally I sent it off to Asimov's Science Fiction. That was the first um, place I sent it, um, and that was my second submission to Asimov's SF. The first submission seems to have gotten lost in the mail, and anyway, ended up getting published in, um, in Interzone just recently, um, and... So anyway, this was pretty much my first submission that arrived at Asimov's, and uh, I heard back from Sheila Williams that uh, they were interested in taking it. Um, one major change had to be made. It was 
full of swear words. Um, in fact, if you read Miles Davis' autobiography, he, he goes into detail about how to use the word motherfucker and how, I, I think I remember this right, that um, the word motherfucker is um, quite okay uh, for African-American men in his age bracket to use to each other. But if you call someone an asshole, then you're going to start a fight. But motherfucker's okay. And he, he goes on about this in some detail. So, um, well, uh, Asimov science fiction can't run the word motherfucker. So, uh, so, of course, cutting that word, which appeared quite a number of times in the first draft, probably too many times anyway, that necessitated some more changes in the language. And I had a lot of fun researching, you know, older lingo, um, older um, slang. So that was, that was good. I thought that was pretty good for the story, although a few of those motherfuckers have been reintroduced into the version that, that's being podcast here, and also um, into the, the version that's, uh, that's going to appear in the year's best uh, science fiction edited by uh, Gardner Dozwa. Um, I, I hope I'm saying that right. Um, uh, and and one of the other um, things I guess that you might be entertained to know is that in in my head when I heard Robbie telling a story I pretty much heard it like Miles Davis and if you haven't heard Miles Davis um, speak especially later in life he had a quite a messed up voice um, from I can't remember exactly but he had some kind of illness that uh, messed up his vocal cords and so he. He, uh, he he, he kind of spoke like this. Um, and you can go and look on YouTube and enjoy some interviews uh, with him. So uh, I, I think that's about all I really have to say about the story for now. Um, uh, we might uh, revisit this uh, this world in a, uh, a later work. I am thinking of writing something longer set in the in the same world, um, but with Russian circus jugglers. But, uh, you know, that that's somewhere down the road. And so anyway, for now, I, I guess I just want to say I hope you enjoyed the story. And uh, thank you, Tony, for uh, for podcasting this. I'm really looking forward to hearing it. Thanks. God, thank you so much. You know what I mean? Thank you for the story. You know what I mean? Heads, God, God kiss that shiny head of yours there, sir. And just doing the outro as well. Do you know what I mean? What an amazing guy. Thank you so much. You know, and if you like Godzilla's work, you know, if you're excited as much as I am, do check back, you know, Starship's over. We did Huluma No More by Godzilla, which was another, like say, a very intense story that very, for me, very th- similar themes to The Drowned World by J.J. Ballard. So next up, we have Skeet who's going to talk about his little bit of his artwork, you know, for the Godzilla story. And to give a little in-depth into a certain artist he liked, Skeet. It's the last time we're going to hear you. Well, hopefully not for that long, but, you know, don't leave it too long, Skeet. Good evening, Sofanauts. This is Skeet, and I just wanted to share with you yet another biography on one of my favorite and most influential artists. Uh, Definitely my favorite ink artist. Um, His name is Bertie Wrightson, and I wanted to give you a brief biography on his life and uh, accomplishments. Uh, Bernie Wrightson was born October 27, 1948, in Baltimore, Maryland. He received training in art from uh, reading comics, particularly those of uh, EC Comics, as well as a uh, thorough uh, correspondence course from the famous Artist School. In 1966, Wrightson began working for the Baltimore Sun newspaper as an illustrator. 
The following year, after meeting artist Frank Frazetta at a comic book convention in New York City, he was inspired to produce his own stories. In 1968, he showed copies of his sequential art to DC Comics editor Dick Giordano and was given a freelance assignment. Um, his first professional comic work appeared in uh, House of Mystery, number 179, in 1968. He continued to work on a variety of mystery and anthology titles for both DC and his principal rival, Marvel Comics. In 1971, with writer Len Wein, Wrightson co-created the muck creature Swamp Thing for DC. He also co-created Destiny, later to become famous in the work of Neil Gaiman. In 1971, he also published Bad Time Stories, a horror sci-fi comics anthology featuring his own scripts and artwork, each story being drawn in a different medium, ink wash, tonal pencil drawings, do a shade, paper, screen tones, uh, as well as uh, along with traditional pen and ink and brushwork. Wrightson had originally been asked by DC to handle the art for its uh, revival of The Shadow, but he left the project early on when he realized he could not produce the necessary minimum number of pages on time. In 1974, he left D.C. to work at Warren Publishing, for whose black-and-white horror comics magazines he produced a series of original work, as well as short story adaptations. As with Bad Time Stories, Wrightson experimented with different medium uh, in these black-and-white tales. Edgar Allan Poe's The Black Cat featured intricate pen and ink work, which stood in direct contrast and uh, with his uh, brush-dominated Swamp Thing panels. Jennifer, scripted by Bruce Jones, was atmospherically rendered with gray markers. The Pepper Lake Monster was a synthetic uh, synthesis, synthesis of brush and pen and ink. That's a big word. <laughs> Where H.P. Lovecraft's Cool Air was a foray into duotone paper. Nightfall was an exercise in ink wash and subtle uh, Little Nemo in Slumberland satire, and the Muck Monster, a sequential art precursor to Wrightson's Frankenstein, with the Franklin Booth-inspired pen and ink style in evidence. In 1975, Wrightson joined with fellow artists Jeff Jones, Michael Kaluta, and Barry Windsor Smith to form the, the studio a shared loft in Manhattan where the group would pursue uh, creative products outside the constraints of comic book commercialism. Uh, though we continued to produce, produce uh, sequential art, Wrightson at this time began producing artwork for numerous posters, prints, calendars, and even coloring books. He also drew sporadic comic stories and single illustrations for National Lampoon's magazine from 1973 to 1983. Wrightson spent seven years drawing approximately 50 detailed pen and ink illustrations to accompany an ed edition of Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein, which the artist considered among his most personal work. And I have to vouch for that book in particular because that is the one book that probably got me hooked on Bernie Wrightson. Uh, it seems that every panel that he drew in that book is an absolute masterpiece, and I would highly recommend 
um, checking out that uh, particular uh, group of illustrations that he did. Wrightson's uh, illustrate, uh, he illustrated the comic book ad- adaptation for uh, Stephen King's penned horror film Creepshow. This led to several other collaborations with King, including illustrations for the novella Cycle of the Werewolf, the restored edition of King's apocalyptic horror epic The Stand, and Wolves of the Kala, the fifth installment of King's Dark Tower series. Wrightson had contributed uh, album covers for a number of bands, including Meatloaf. Uh, the Captain Stern segment of the animated film Heavy Metal is based on a character created by Wrightson. And he did production designs for the characters, uh, the Reavers, in the 2005 film Serenity. Uh, Bernie still obviously is working. He's a, uh, always busy and always doing things. Uh, I've enjoyed... Uh, seeing him progress just in the probably last 25 years that I've known that he was around. And uh, it seems that everything he does uh, reaches a new level every time he creates. Um, check out his website if you can, uh, and I'll have some links on, uh, on Tony's site as well as on my site. And if you'd like to check that out, as well as uh, other sci-fi artists, um, you can see it on my website at skeetland-art.com. I'd also like to briefly touch on Lester Young's. I really enjoyed the the story that uh, Gord Seller uh, created here. I listened to it numerous times to get a feel for uh, the cover that I did for this month, and uh, I really enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, it's probably one of the best narrations I've heard so far on the sofa, and uh, the sort of combination of 1940s history as well as the uh, introduction of extremely advanced science fiction stuff and things that are obviously in our modern world seem to really create this um, alternate reality that uh, I really enjoyed. And um, I'd like to see what today's world would be like if that's the way it was back in the 1940s. Um, but the uh, the story itself I, uh, I thought was very well written. And uh, I, I keep wanting to see what happens at the end of the story. And I always think of uh, a good sci-fi story or a good story in general as being something that doesn't leave you hanging so much, but always makes you wonder what's going to happen next. So my um, hat off to Gord Seller. And uh, I'd like to thank Tony for uh, letting me once again illustrate uh, this uh, magazine cover. I uh, told Tony recently that I'm going to be taking a break from the covers for a few months. Um, I've got a large project with um, uh, Innovo Disc Golf, which is one of my main art projects that I do. And uh, I'll be devoting most of my time to that for the next uh, four or five months. But I will be back. And I think, as far as I know, he's going to try to promote some uh, other uh, fan art to uh, decorate the covers. And I'll, I'll still be putting them all together. But uh, please, uh, I encourage anyone out there who enjoys doing artwork and enjoys sci-fi art to send Tony uh, your uh, submissions. And uh, don't be afraid, uh, whether you're good or great uh, or really bad, I'm sure we'd all love to see it anyways. Um, please send it in. And I appreciate everybody's support and response for my covers that I've done. And I will uh, be talking to you soon. Thank you very much.
There you go. Skeet, thank you so much. Yes, please, please, please. If any artists are out there and want to come over to starshipsofa at gmail.com. Skeet, I'm going to miss you, to be quite honest. You know what I mean? Like I say, Starship Sofa is very, it is a very close community. You know, it's, it's a, and you just get friends. You know what I mean? And I would have just loved to have, like, met Skeet. Do you know what I mean? We'll probably never do. Do you know what I mean? We're on, we're on different sides of the pond. But, you know what I mean? It just, just our emails and stuff like that. And, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm going to miss him. Do you know what I mean? So, Skeet, please don't stay away too long. Fine friend, sir. I think we'll finish off with our last poem by Bruce Boston. Gargoyle People If gargoyle people were the world, standards of beauty would be far different than they are today. The eye of the beholder would adore the grotesque, worship the malformed, and rejoice in the appalling. We would stand still for hours at a time without flinching, never blinking, glaring into one another's countenances, bearing our static rage and indomitable horror with pride for all the world to see. When shadows of the sun or moon moved across the lines and planes of our chiseled faces, umbra and penumbra like shifting scars, we would celebrate the hideous chiaroscuro that light and its absence invoked. The rains would darken our expressions further, mottling our features like a pox, sending the dirt from heaven coursing through our orifices and torrents, spewing from our mouths and staining our lips in muddied streams. And when the winds teased our cracks and crevices and whistled and thrummed through the stone hollows of our wrathful selves, the music we would make would be fierce, lovely, rich, and mad first appeared in Asimov's Science Fiction, April-May 2008. There you go. Don't forget, copyright throughout the story is all the authors. Again, don't go out trying to change it or sell it, but please, by all means, share away. I did forget to mention that narration today for all those poems is by Diane Severson. Diane, sorry about that. I do apologise. Do pop over to Diane's site. Links on the front of the website. Now, I know this has turned into a mother of a show, but if you just allow me a few more seconds to just say, give you a heads up, just again, a thank you to Chris Collins. Chris has been behind the scenes working on building the, the Starship Sofa site because I wanted to kind of move away from that old site. That old site was very static, and I always had to kind of rely on other people to get it anything done. Do you know what I mean? I'm talking about anything. And I thought, you know, I, I kind of need to upgrade and move it away, to be quite honest. So, And then, you know... Bless him, Chris took it on and then realised how much baggage the Starship Sofa's got, you know, so, and it came to a point where Chris said, listen, Tony, I, 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 that's as best I can do, I've actually got, got a life to live myself, so it was kind of not put on the on the back burner, but I, I was thinking, oh, how do I, I go about it now, and then really, I got the kickstart from the old site, last week's show didn't go live, you know, and I did everything right in the kind of the process there. But it didn't go right, and I didn't get in touch. Or Paul didn't get in touch with us for like two days after you know it, it kind of failed, and I was frantic to be quite honest. Thinking that kind of you know I want to get this show out, and no communication or anything like that. So I just basically had to email Chris and say, Chris, listen, I need to sign up. Is there a chance we can do something? And then you know, bless him, pull his put his clothes on there because I don't know what time I emailed him you know it was like I need a site up now 
So from there, it has been a bit of a frantic time. Frantic for me, to be quite honest. It was just like hideous, 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 you know, because I'm right in the middle of getting all these Nebula Best Short Story Awards out and, like, recorded, ready for next week. And, you know, just like, I haven't seen me kids or anything. It's just been one hectic time. But, like I say, I kind of complain because I've got a fantastic site there and... It's surprising how many people come out of the woodwork now that it's kind of, it's a WordPress site and say, oh, Tony, Tony, oh, hey, you know, so thank you everyone that's been involved. And then just, again, another little heads up for next week, we're going to put out, it's on the Thursday, not on the Wednesday, I'm going to put out the whole seven of the Nebula Short Story Awards that are up for Best Short Story 2008. So what I've found, and I thank you, Church, on the forums for, for mentioning this, if you're... And it's actually mine as well. If your iTunes is set to only receive the one show, that's all you'll get. So you'll have to make your like little adjustments, you know, when you plug your iPod in and you go to podcasts and how many you want to receive and things like that. Because there is going to be like seven shows come out at one day. So if you don't like set your settings right, you might just get the one story. Do you know what I mean? So do look out for that. That's I forgot all about that. Do you know what I mean? And maybe that might have been an idea not to actually do it on one day. But the reasoning why I'm going to put them all out on one day is it the seven of them. Do you know what I mean? And because I think round about now it's the twenty fourth, somewhere around there, about April, where they actually choose the winners. And you couldn't get it every week. It would just kind of be too crammed and too squashed up and you know i've got like advertisements in there and i didn't want to put advertisements on these kind of stories so i thought if i can just get them out on the one day and that's like a little batch and then they're away set free and if anyone wants to listen to them you know that's great and then please by all means come over to the forums and have a, a chat there about them but you know like the week after we keep on rolling on there'll be another story on the wednesday you know the another oral delights shows 70 oh i don't know how many because i'm going to count these ones as oral delight shows but there will be Another one next week as well. So there you go. Don't forget to change your settings for iTunes next week. So don't forget, you know, artwork. If anyone wants to do artwork or fact articles, if anyone wants to send some fact articles or talk to us about fact articles, we have now on the site, there is a a guidelines as well. Now Grant's written up guidelines for any work. So just go over there and check out the guidelines. Coming on the sofa soon, on the actual Starship Sofa site, there will be a gallery where you can kind of see all the artwork. I'm getting that sorted out as well. And there will be like a, a contributor's little tab as well. So you can go down and you can check the writers, you can check the narrators and the fact article people, everyone like that. They'll, they'll be their own little kind of home. Or fingers crossed that's how it's going to be. Until then, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A badly recent procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.